This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. As we're shifting the, uh, the, the panel seats here, I do want to make the one comment on active surveillance that you know, for many years surveillance has been underused across the United States, and there's studies that we have done in the capture registry and elsewhere showing that 90% of men with low-risk disease were getting over-treated. And just in the current decade, Okay, we're seeing a real paradigm change. It's happening very, very quickly. We found in CAPTCHA the rate is now up to 40%. There's other data sources now showing about 40 to 60% of men with low-risk disease in the U.S. are now getting put on active surveillance. This is rapid, rapid progress in the right direction. If you look at Sweden, they're about 80%, and that's probably where we should be. Uh, it's never going to be 100%. As, as Peter just said, there are, there are some men with low-risk disease who will benefit from immediate treatment, but it should be fairly uncommon. And note that when we talk about 80%, we're not talking about race, age, number of course positive, etc. Almost all Gleason 3 plus 3 will be amenable to surveillance early on. It doesn't mean it never needs to be treated, but it certainly means it does not need to be immediately treated. So with that, we're going to start focusing on the tumors that do need to be treated. Um, and uh, I'm going to do this, we're going to run this one a little bit more case-based, uh, no more didactic slides, because I think everybody's had a good overview now of surgery and radiation therapy, and we can also drill deeper uh, when it comes to questions for any of these. So we're just going to do two cases, because there's a lot to talk about with each of these cases. Uh, so one sort of intermediate case and one of what's emerging as a, as a high-risk case. So our first case here um, is a 67-year-old gentleman with moderate left which is lower urinary tract symptoms, obstructive symptoms, typically from BPH. He's got good sexual function. He was originally diagnosed with Gleason 3 plus 3 cancer in two out of 12 cores. These are both real cases. He came to see us at UCSF as an active surveillance candidate. The first thing that we do recommend is a confirmatory biopsy. And sure enough, following on the, the prior session, we found both on MRI and on ultrasound a lesion which had clearly been missed on the first biopsy. And when we biopsied that lesion, we found uh, Gleason 4 plus 3 prostate cancer in this lesion, and from the similar part of the prostate, we found one core of three plus four. So this now gives him a CAPRA score of four, solidly intermediate risk tumor, and he is now faced with this myriad options. Um, uh, and you know, we're going to promise you 100% consensus across the panel. We're all going to say the exact same thing <laughs> as far as what we should do. Dr. Roach has agreed to this in advance. Um, so just to lead off, I, you know, and I don't think anybody on the panel, just to any, you know, anyone think that this patient's a good candidate for active surveillance? No. 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 Would agree with that. We will occasionally have men that are very insistent that they do not want treatment. So I can think of, you know, less than a handful uh, with limited volume four plus threes, where we will go down the path of genomic testing, et cetera. Not with the idea that we can defer treatment forever, but that it might be safe to wait six to twelve months, that sort of thing. So very limited surveillance. What about focal therapy for a four plus three tumor? So, and this, well, this is evolving. So the UK has a trial, by the way, and the UK tends to be way ahead of us in terms of trials with, uh, with prostate cancer. They actually have a randomized trial accruing right now of focal therapy versus radical prostatectomy, and they're allowing any Gleason 7, 3 plus 4, 4 plus 3, it can be a high, it can be a large, visible 4 plus 3 tumor. Uh, they are allowing focal therapy. Uh, my big caveat here tends to be the risk of nodal invasion, and I don't know if... Uh, Dr. Roach or anybody else wants to comment on that. Once we get into the four plus three tumors, the risk of lymph node invasion is not trivial. Um, and you know, the window, the issue with focal therapy tends to be the window of men who need treatment and are not good surveillance candidates, and yet we can safely treat just the tumor and leave the leave the rest of the prostate and the lymph nodes alone. 
the folks in the UK might be way ahead of you in surgery, but they're not way ahead of us with radiation. <laughs> or medical oncology. <laughs> I'm talking about the trials, the trials, the trials, the trials. They haven't really, uh, they haven't addressed the issue of pelvic nodal radiation. They mostly are looking at how to reduce the overall treatment time because it saves them money. And, uh, you know, so I, I you know, I, uh, but I think doing focal therapy would be a bad idea in somebody that has disease that's likely to be multifocal. And your point about pelvic nose is important. Yeah. Uh, so I think if we were going to take a gentleman like this to the OR, um, the question of open versus robot assisted surgery, I think, is really fading into obscurity and irrelevance. I mean, the fact of the matter is you can do a good job. Open, you can do a good job. Robot assisted. I would echo uh, what Felix just said. Just make sure you find a surgeon who does a good job and knows his or her own outcomes and can quote them to you. Um, whether it's open or robot assisted really makes much less of a difference than the experience and skill of the individual surgeon and center. Um, I think most would agree that for a tumor like this, we would include a lymph node dissection. Uh, now, what the extent of this dissection is a little more controversial, whether we need to go you know, take more lymph nodes. Uh, this is where we are really hoping in the near future to have imaging tests uh, that we can use for intraoperative localization of nodes so that we don't need to do a full dissection. We can just go after any uh, visible nodes on a preoperative PET scan guided by intraoperative uh, imaging modality. So that is coming, but not here yet. But if we are going to radiate, so what about options in terms of modalities? Should we treat the prostate only? Should we treat the whole pelvis? Should we include ADT? Brachy versus SBRT? Uh, okay. If you want to speak about radiation. Okay. Right. Talk about well, uh, you know, we, we don't actually know the answer to that question, specifically for this kind of patient. We're doing trials. Actually, Felix is involved in leading some of the, the new studies. We have data that suggests that treating the pelvic lymph nodes with hormone therapy will reduce the risk of biochemical failure. We have data that shows that brachytherapy alone is as effective as brachytherapy plus external beam radiation. We did study that in the trial, but we don't know whether hormone therapy should be added to those patients. Early data with SBRT looks very promising, but that the second to the last uh, line there about whether you can replace brachytherapy with SBRT is still being studied. And uh, proton beam has no advantage. Let me just re restate that. It has no advantage over any of these other treatments. It's more expensive, and we can talk about the technical details at lunchtime if you like. So, Dr. Yu, how do you counsel this patient what, in terms of options? Sure. I mean, I think uh, we always, you know, I practice out of Marin. I'm actually a community physician that actually works very closely with the UCSF doctors here. Um, and, you know, in our practice, we uniformly send all patients in this situation to go see a radiation oncologist to learn about those kind of options in addition to talking about uh, surgical things. Uh, I think in this situation, for a patient such as this, we usually will go through uh, nomograms, which is something called the Catan nomogram, where we can kind of look at what is their likelihood of developing extracapsular disease, seminal vesicle involvement, lymph node disease. Uh, these patients historically have had what we call the traditional or you know standard lymph node dissection. And to Matt's point, there's a lot of data that has come out of Italy from Briganti who has published that actually if you remove more lymph nodes, uh, you probably find more disease that you didn't know about. And so I think in these situations, you know, I've heard that sometimes some surgeons will even say, if you're going to do a lymph node dissection, you should just do an extended lymph node dissection. There's many low-risk situations if you are operating on that. Uh, you may not even need to do a lymph node dissection for 
I would say favorable intermediate risk disease, you may consider not having to do a lymph node dissection in those situations. Uh, but I think if you're going to be operating for intermediate, unfavorable inf- intermediate, especially and definitely for high risk, which we'll talk about, I think a extended lymph node dissection is definitely, uh, in my opinion, prudent. Um, so definitely this patient would be offered uh, surgery as well as uh, radiation. And how should he choose his modality? So he sees two different radiation oncologists who put four different modalities on the menu. What's the choice, the decision between brachytherapy, SBRT, dose-intensified IMRT? Well, as the speakers have said before, this is patient preference. We discuss the advantages and disadvantages of each of the approaches. We don't have clear-cut evidence that one is clearly superior, <clears throat> and patients get to choose which, which, is, which they feel most comfortable with. Mac, can, I'd let, let me ask you a question. Um, and we'll be addressing this later, but not every patient um, in this room has access to all these modalities at UCSF or UCLA. How, if you're in the community, how do you think about this? And what do you, other than finding people who are experienced, and it's well, great that you have all these options, but yeah. not everyone has those. Right. So there's some basic things. Uh, the you know where did the person train? Um, sometimes I have patients, I'll see them for a second opinion, and um, they will tell me uh, that their doctor didn't think they needed to have image-guided radiation. I tell them then they probably should find another doctor. <laughs> um, so I, I do tell patients that if, if, if a doctor makes a recommendation to you, feel comfortable asking the doctor why. Okay, where's the data that says I need to take or I might benefit from four months of hormone therapy? You know, and then maybe I'll think about it. I sat down with a patient the other day. He wanted to know why I was recommending several years of hormone therapy for his prostate cancer with his radiation. So we sat down. I showed him the data. And at the end of the conversation, he said, okay, I'm going to do it. So you want to be able to ask questions, have your questions answered. And there are some things that are really critical to your care that you should know about. So let's say the patient does decide to have surgery and we find that the cancer on the final analysis of pathology, the margin is clear, but the cancer has grown to an extent outside the edge of the prostate. So that's what we call a T3 tumor. Uh, First PSA comes back undetectable below 0.05. Do we offer this patient radiation therapy as an adjuvant? Do we wait for the PSA? What's what's your practice in in Marin? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'd say, first off, getting that negative margin is obviously very important. Um, I think there are certain things that, you know, now we have the MRI, which can help give us a roadmap versus you know, even five years ago, we didn't have that modality to really help us uh, determine how wide do you want to go when you're actually doing the surgery. There are actually some nomograms that are out there as well that um, where historically we can look back and say, this is your kind of disease that you have. We can actually map it out, put it into a little computer program, and it will actually tell you what is the probability of you having cancer one millimeter outside of the edge of the prostate, two millimeters outside of the edge of the prostate, three millimeters outside of the edge of the prostate. And so we can actually, because of the beauty of the robot, we can actually see what that kind of magnification to determine how wide do we actually want to go during the operation. So not every single situation is you remove all of the nerve bundle on one side where the cancer is. You can actually do a partial nerve sparing and actually go just two millimeters away because you know that that's only a 3% risk of it being outside. So I think achieving that clear margin from the get-go is very important. I think with the data that people have published, uh, we're able to be more specific in how, how we actually choose how wide we go. 
For someone in this situation where they have a uh, initially undetectable PSA and then it became detectable as zero point? All we have is the first. Uh, two months out and we just have the one PSA. Do we so do adjuvant yeah, is so the question think, based uh, on guidelines. That's the beauty of some of these genomic tests nowadays that we have. So uh, we will always send a decipher test. Uh, it will only be covered if you have certain high-risk features uh, such as extracapsular extension, seminal vesicle involvement, a positive surgical margin. and so. That can help us determine uh, the genetic behavior of this kind of cancer. And if it is high risk, there's definitely data that has shown that uh, giving adjuvant radiation up front is actually beneficial. I think there has never been, to my knowledge, studies that have actually compared early salvage radiation compared to actually adjuvant radiation. So the <clears> difference <throat> between those two is adjuvant, you give radiation before the cancer has actually come back. Uh, versus salvage is you give it when it hits a certain threshold of 0 0.2, which is usually the most people's benchmark. Uh, early salvage, some people have thought, well, if we, why wait till 0.2, why don't you give it earlier if it's a little bit of a higher risk disease, in which case you might give radiation when it hits 0.1 or whatnot. Now, it's really interesting to see, I think, this whole PSMA business, which is if we're not recommending it till 0.2, what do you do in those situations where you have high risk disease and you have 0.1 you know, as your PSA? Do you treat now or do you wait till it gets to point two? In which case, do you miss that window of, of benefit with the salvage? So, so in our case here, we would send a, a decipher test and talk to the patient about the pros and cons of adjuvant radiation. Trials of adjuvant versus early salvage actually will be coming out in the next couple of years. The, uh, so we've got three large trials that show a benefit for adjuvant radiation over waiting really late until the cancer is very uh, evolved. And the guidelines do support adjuvant radiation. The reality is in the era of ultra-sensitive PSA testing, I think most of us do rely on PSA and genomics uh, and imaging, which, which actually segues into our, our second case, which I do want to have time for. Um, and this is where we are really on the cutting edge of the challenges that we are unearthing as we are looking harder these cancers with novel imaging. So our second patient is 58. He was diagnosed with a Gleason 9, a 4 plus 5, in moderate volume, 5 out of 12 cores. PSA is 6.8. <laughs> Again, his MRI showed a Pyrotes 5 lesion with no extra capsular disease. This gives him a CAPR 6. He had a negative staging evaluation with CT and bone scan and was actually being worked up for surgery when he got to UCSF. And a PSMA test was ordered here, which showed disease outside of the pelvis, only in the neck and in the mediastinum. Um, this was one of the first PSMAs to actually get done at UCSF, and there was some skepticism about this brand new test, and this must be false positive, because how could it possibly be in the neck and not the pelvis? So we biopsied it, and it turns out to be positive. Um, and this is probably much more common than we think. We've just never been able to look before. So now this is a gentleman who has a clinically localized tumor by all the conventional imaging, but now we have novel imaging that shows limited volume metastatic disease. And when it's out of the pelvic nodes, we do consider that metastatic as opposed to just nodal. So now the question becomes, do we treat him with hormone therapy alone? Do we intensify that with abiraterone or chemo? Uh, do we add local therapy to that? What should the sequence be? Uh, so I'm going to start with Dr. Small on this one. This is a, this is a, uh, it's a great case because it's a typical tough case because by conventional measures, this man has localized prostate cancer. But by PSMA and biopsy, he's got metastatic disease. And I think he has to be treated as if he's got minimal extent of metastatic disease. So at a minimum, there has to be some degree of systemic therapy, meaning androgen deprivation therapy. I don't, I don't think there's any question of that. One of the issues is duration and whether you intensify. Um, the, the sort of summary that I showed earlier in terms of patients that benefit from intensification, 
has largely, the data has largely been based, or has entirely been based on conventional imaging. And in those patients, there's no question that dose intensification, either with adding abiraterone or chemotherapy, uh, is beneficial from a survival perspective. I think there's a lot of downsides to chemotherapy relative to, to abiraterone um, uh, that, that are now becoming apparent it may not be as effective. Um, it's cheaper, much cheaper than abiraterone because it's very short term. Um, but I think someone like this probably would benefit from intensification. Uh, the bigger question is, you know, if all we can find by PSMA PET is one or two lesions, I'm going to turn to my colleagues here, and I know it's the intent of the question, is, is there value in going after those lesions, either surgically or with radiation therapy? I have my opinion. <laughs> Mac? Well, um, I know your opinion too. Yeah, and I know this case very well, and 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 the answer is not known. Uh, the the right answer is not known. We can extrapolate. There was a large study called the Stampede study that took patients with metastatic disease and divided them up into those with extensive metastatic and those with minimal metastatic to try to answer the question whether there was value to treating the primary. And the studies showed that, that there was a survival advantage to treating the prostate with radiation, even in people with metastatic disease, as long as their metastatic disease was minimal. Which this counts as. Which, which this counts as. So I would recommend, and I did recommend, that this patient have his primary treated. Then becomes the question, should, is, is surgery equal to radiation in a setting? That hasn't really been studied, but certainly Treatment of the primary, I would, I would be inclined to do. And, the, and the, then the other question is, well, what about his node, which I think he still has some activity there. Uh, there's a, there are studies looking at other solid tumors, where, including prostate, in, in, in studies where people are looking at systemic therapy plus treatment of isolated metastases that suggest there may be value in terms of freedom from progression and, in some cases, possibly survival with the treatment of isolated metastases. Sometimes we call these oligometastatic disease. So in a 58-year-old guy, I completely agree with Eric about his need for, I would want him to get some aggressive hormonal therapy, and I think his primary needs to be treated and his metastasis needs to be treated. And those are all based on extrapolations of data from randomized trials. The, the, other, well, so the, the other RCTs worth highlighting, though, is we, we have years of data that for somebody with a clinically localized, which this guy is, negative bone sign, negative CT, high-grade cancer, that there is a huge benefit to local therapy with hormones over hormonal therapy alone. And we're just looking harder, right? So this is a gentleman who was M0 by decades of standard imaging, and now we have just found something that we couldn't find before. But he's actually got the same cancer that he would have had five years ago or ten years ago. So it's a real challenge in terms of what we do with this. If anybody's heard the term the Will Rogers phenomenon, this is it in action. Will Rogers, of course, was the comic from the 30s who had this comment that in the 30s in the Dust Bowl, when all the Okies moved to California, the average intelligence of both states went up, right? Which was a dig at the Okies, but a much bigger dig at the Californians. And the point is, you know, as we move move all these M0s from Oklahoma into California, right? We're we are changing the nature of what it means to have M0 cancer, because now M0 is really M0, or at least closer to it. We still can't see a 1,000 cells. It, you know, it takes a billion cells to light up a bone scan. It still takes tens of millions to light up a PSMA scan. So 1,000 cells is still falsely called M0. And now the M1s, on average, have a lower density of cells. So we're changing these definitions very rapidly, and we don't necessarily know what to do with them.
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, this is actually really interesting because it, up until that, I guess, the previous slide, you know, we didn't have access to PSMA PET. UCSF was doing PSMA PET years before we actually even had access to it. And until we kind of learned about it as we had this partnership, uh, we were in those situations where we had only CT scan and bone scan to kind of stage these patients. And so it was really interesting because now since, as, as everyone's pointed out, uh, all these new imaging modalities have really opened our eyes to uh, this metastatic disease that's elsewhere. So I think uh, for people who are out there, I know this is also being broadcast in other places, definitely push your urologists and your you know, oncologists to get some of these staging studies done because uh, if you're just using CT scan and bone scan, you're likely dramatically underestimating the degree of disease that you have. Now, that being said, I think in this situation, to me, I think about it more as local control and, and s systemic control. And I think for someone with, uh, of this age, being 58, I would definitely consider them for surgery. Now, I would say, to be honest, I, I don't think that there is as much data for surgery in this oligometastatic disease setting than there is for radiation. Uh, so I would advocate, actually, if this was someone that was coming to see me in my clinic, I would actually advocate that they actually be referred for a clinical trial. There are actually a lot of new uh, clinical trials that are looking at neoadjuvant therapies involving things like enzalutamide or sometimes even docetaxel to be able to offer in combination with surgery. Uh, but I would not be offering this personally because I feel like for the betterment of science, this patient should be done, if they're going to have surgery, done in a... Uh, clinical trial type setting. But I think radiation, there's, there is a lot more data that supports that. <laughs> so the one, uh, I just want folks to distinguish between the discussion that's been had about treating the primary in the setting of metastatic disease. And, and just uh, I want to pause and have people rethink that. I mean, for years, I can think back 20 years ago, Mac Roach hitting me over the head and saying, you know, we really need to be thinking about why, why is it that, you know, in other cancers, we treat the primary even in the setting of metastatic disease, but here we traditionally have it. This is a paradigm shift. And so it is now, there, there's level one evidence that shows that treating the primary, even once the cancer has spread, provided it's not extensive, has a significant clinical impact, and that should become the standard of care, is the standard of care. It's not everywhere. But that, so that's one really important take-home message, is treating the primary. The second is treating the oligometastases. So oligo for the few, you know, the oligarchy, the few. Oligometastatic refers to few metastases. There's any number of definitions. Some people it's three or, say it's three or less. Some people say it's five or less. You know, if you're looking at PSMA, you're going to find a whole lot more. Um, but if there are a few metastases, the question that Mac raised also is, is there benefit to treat the metastases as well? Um, and in fairness, I think that the, that the data that are out there, certainly with radiation and SBRT, the data suggests that, one, it's safe and feasible. Two, that it drops PSA. Three, that it probably delays time to subsequent systemic therapy, hormonal therapy. But we really don't yet have definitive proof, as Mac alluded to, that it will prolong survival. Be, given that, we nevertheless believe that if you can control the cancer for a prolonged period of time, that's bound to be of benefit. So I think the field is moving that way. There are clinical trials. And I think one of the questions that's going to be asked is, you know, what, what are the systemic therapies that you add to that to enhance it? Let me just say one other thing. 
I made a comment about radiotherapy in the UK. Actually, they did the most, they've done some of the most important trials in this setting. They ran the Stampede trial that showed that you need to treat the, 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 the primary. And they did some of the, in Europe, they've done some of the most important trials and in Canada to show that uh, hormone therapy alone is inadequate in patients with high-risk disease. These are people that walk in the door that appear to have locally advanced prostate cancer. And for years we said, well, probably hormone therapy is adequate. But they showed it was not adequate. We couldn't do that study here in the U.S. There are other studies we can do. So I think we've benefited from, from others. Great. With that, I think we should uh, move to some questions. Yeah. Do we have questions? Do we have uh, papers? We have time for just yeah, a few just questions. Yeah. We've got about five minutes. All right. How does a BRCA2 mutation inform treatment? That's a great question. Uh, you know, first of all, the question has come up, should a BRCA mutation preclude you from active surveillance? This is another question we do not yet know the answer to. Uh, I think the consensus in the lack of any good trials is that you're still eligible for surveillance if you've got a known BRCA mutation, but we need to do it very carefully. This is someone in whom we're really going to do very careful surveillance. We're not going to skip biopsies. We're going to keep a very close eye on the PSA. If you have progressive disease with BRCA mutations, then we are starting to tailor the types of systemic treatments um, if it is known that the tumor has a, has a BRCA mutation or another DNA, pair, uh, DNA pathway mutation. I don't know if you want to comment on that. We'll be talking about that later. Uh, let's see. If you don't treat the metastatic tumors, will they themselves spread? And this is another area where we don't really know the answer. There is some evidence that the primary tumor is continuing to seed cells out to all the metastatic sites. And this is one of the theories why treating the primary tumor in the prostate has some survival benefit. Uh, there are other studies showing that the, that the mets kind of cross-seed each other. And that's the point with this maximal site of reduction, is just decreasing the overall burden and volume of cells will eventually uh, by survival time. It's not going to cure, but will buy survival time. So any, another way to look at that is any prostate cancer cell, wherever it is, can duplicate and can spread. So if you have one metastasis, it can turn into 10. So treating it makes sense. Does Flomax change the effectiveness of any treatments? The answer is no. Um, <laughs> that's easy. Uh, let's see. Is there value for PSMA PET after hormonal therapy and radiation for localized disease to detect possible isolated METs? Yeah, the you know the impact of ADT on. PSMA in the short term is still being worked out. Actually, I just saw a paper come through uh, just in the last couple of weeks uh, showing that there may be a little bit of what we call flare phenomenon. We've seen this in bone scans and other imaging modalities where at first when you start treatment, initially the scan actually gets worse before it gets better. But I think, uh, you know, the, I mean, the short answer is it's still being worked out. What the, uh, I don't know if Tom is still here. I don't see him. Um, it, it, we're still learning with PSMA what the impact of systemic treatments is on those scans. Um, let's see. Aside from active surveillance for localized disease and intermediate risk prostate cancer, which focal ablative therapies are offered at UCSF and which have been validated as standard of care? So the second part of the question is easy. The answer is none. Um, focal therapy really is still considered, I mean, not quite investigational. It's not like it has to be done under an IRB, but it's done very, very carefully and very selectively. We are doing focal cryotherapy at UCSF, treating really just the tumor when there's a visible tumor. Um, and we have some protocols opening for HIFU. The issue 
issue with focal therapy is really about imaging. I think you know, cryo, HIFU, interstitial laser therapy, there's, um, there's photodynamic treatment, there's IM Newt, you can, you know, whatever you like, there's a million ways of destroying prostate tissue. The issue is do you know what you're destroying and can you do that precisely and, and know what the rest of the prostate, uh, what's going to happen with the rest of the prostate. We also do focal therapy and salvage of people who have local recurrences after external beam radiation. So if a patient has had external beam radiation, the PSA starts to go up, we do MRs, we do biopsies, and they're found to have limited amount of disease, sometimes we will just implant that part of the prostate with brachytherapy seeds. Would proton therapy not be better than photon therapy? If you have a pediatric brain tumor, by all means, get proton therapy. If Maybe. you have a prostate, <laughs> yeah. my expertise. Yeah. If you have a prostate cancer, there is not a shred of data published anywhere ever showing any well. clinical superiority to proton therapy over photon-based, regular-based radiation therapy, as Dr. Rush said earlier. You know, it's very expensive. If you read the marketing stuff coming out of Loma Linda, you would think that this is the only way to treat prostate cancer, and 100% of men are cured with no side effects. The beauty is most of the men don't go back to Loma Linda for management of their side effects. They come back to UCSF. I'm, not, I'm unfortunately not kidding about this. And I'm waiting for somebody to file a, a truth in advertising suit about you know, the, the extent of the, of the advertising that comes out on protons is really kind of egregious. There are trials going on. The folks at uh, Mass General are running a randomized trial of IMRT versus proton-based therapy for low to intermediate risk prostate cancer. That will be a great trial when it's done. In the meantime, even ASTRO, the radiation oncology organization, says this should not be done for prostate cancer outside of a clinical trial setting because there's no evidence that it's any better. They will show lots of pretty pictures about no exit doses and all these sorts of things and dosimetry pictures. The question that matters is, does it cure the cancer any better? No. Does it avoid sexual bowel and urinary side effects any better? The answer is not as far as anybody's been able to prove. I don't want to hide. You know, we're going to build a carbon ion facility at some point, but uh, that's a whole different story. I think that runs through them. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.